Hey everybody, we're back for a new episode of uh, Dear Baseball Gods, and today we've got an exciting guest, uh, one of my buddies, former teammates from last year, my uh, my fellow bullpen mate, Kevin Vance. Kevin, how you doing, man? Doing awesome. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm, I don't know who's in a worse spot. I'm out in Bloomington, Illinois. You're trapped in, what is it, Rhode Island? Yeah, it's beautiful here. I'm in Rhode Island. Yeah, so... a couple blocks from the beach. Oh, okay. What's uh, what what is Rhode Island known for besides Peter Griffin? I think that's the only relevant thing that's ever come out of Rhode Island. <laughs> uh, I think it has Spin Zone, the uh, biggest coastline in the U.S. If you add up all the uh, nooks and crannies. Oh, really? Interesting. I mean, the Thank thing I, the thing I liked most about Long Island last year. You know, obviously there's good seafood, there's good bagels. You know, right over in Connecticut, there's great lobster rolls. Obviously, you've you lived in Boston for a long time. What I mean, they're also famous for lobster, but is there like you guys are like clams or oysters, like anything? Uh, it's Rhode Island's a different part of New England. It's like it's a different accent. I'd say, I mean, the Rhode Island accent is like a combination of Boston and like Italian New York. It's probably my favorite part about it. Like sounds- the province accent. Hmm, that sounds terrifying. I, yeah, I don't know like, that I can picture that either. If you you know the the typical like southern accent compared to like a Cajun accent, okay. it's kind of like that comparison. Like Rhode Island's like the Cajun southern accent. Interesting, interesting. All <laughs> right, so for all of those uh, of you listening, um, Kevin and I played last year in 2016 with the Long Island Ducks. Um, we were both relievers. Got to talk a lot in the bullpen. Um, both of us hung up our cleats this past year, and Kevin's now the uh, assistant. One of the assistant coaches at URI, University of Rhode Island. He's a pitching coach there. Um, and I'm going to go through his bio real quick because he's had a pretty impressive career. So you're a native of Solana Beach, California, which I've never heard of. Um, Kevin uh, attended UConn, where he was a All-American closer his junior year, um, helping his team to get to the Super Regionals. So you guys got out of the Clemson Regional, huh? That's pretty impressive. Um, and one of his interesting thing was, and I didn't see this during pitchers BP because I mean, if we're just being honest, like you have no power, but, uh, <laughs> Kevin was a two way player in college and he was, you were all, you're all big East as a pitcher in 11 and you're all big, all big East as a, uh, DH in 2010, huh? Yep. And, uh, just to defend myself, I did win home run derby for uh pitchers BP. Well, I don't know. That. that sounds like a, f- a false memory, but we'll move on. Um, you're drafted by the 19th round after the 2011 season by the White Sox. In 2013 and 14, you reached Double A. Spent some, spent a good amount of time in Birmingham, right? And then in 2015, uh, you signed as a free agent with the Diamondbacks, where you reached as high as Triple A with the Reno Aces. Um, and then obviously, you and I were teammates in Long Island for 2016. And I think after I departed. Um, and depart is the wrong word. After I was sent packing, um, a couple weeks later, you were traded off to the New Britain Bees. Um, so for his career, uh, aside being a um, a two-way player at a Division One university, which is pretty incredible, Kevin had six seasons of pro baseball, lifetime 3.81 ERA, 365 strikeouts, and 328 innings. So, you know, nine and change uh, Ks, per, or Ks per nine innings is pretty impressive. Um, and you were what mostly reliever. I know you had a couple starts for us, and you you'd what one season as a starter in pro baseball. Is that right? Yeah, my first full season, I started to begin the year. I think I had like nine starts, uh, eight or nine starts, and then we had uh, one of our our bigger arms 
come off the DL and he took my spot and I went and went back into the bullpen and kind of actually took off from there once I went into the bullpen. Well, that's kind of yeah, you're nasty. So, you know, obviously when they figured that out, they're like, hey, this guy's too nasty to start. So that's, a really, yeah, that's honestly a good point. I'm pretty yeah, nasty. <laughs> and then <laughs> the last thing on your uh, on your resume, which is definitely not least, is you play with the Philippines in the World Baseball Classic. So um, before we get rolling on some of other topics, what is it like to play in the World Baseball Classic? That was I've said it before. That's probably my favorite baseball experience. Um, like compared to you know playing Double A, Triple A, it was really cool to represent a country. I mean, my mom's Filipino, and half the team was from the Philippines, so that was probably the coolest part for me. The just half the team was American Philip. Um, filipino americans and the other half was from the philippines like come from a different world from manila all over different parts of the philippines and just talking to those guys and just seeing the world that they come from and playing with them and they had some good players which is pretty cool um but probably my favorite baseball experience just because who we were playing for and it wasn't you know just playing for myself like it kind of is in the minor leagues um in a sense it was playing for countries it was cool um so and you guys that was in sydney right isn't that where they flew yeah. you up to yeah and that was the first time i'd been out of the united states so that was a cool experience it was basically a couple weeks free trip to uh sydney play a little baseball had, had enough time to travel around sydney and check it out too so that was awesome for me yes yeah, so you had to leave your tractor at home <laughs> for a little while and, is that your first <laughs> trip on an airplane <laughs> no no i mean no that was uh but for was like the- a kid a uh, you know for like a kid listening who's you know 16 17 who watches the world baseball classic on tv like what what is it like so obviously like how did you get hooked up with it obviously they they you're what on a 14 hour plane ride or something like that to Australia. But like, what's, what's the kind of like day to day, if you're to sum it up in a couple minutes, um, of being like one of those players, like how do you get treated? You know, people hear about the college world series players, how they get, you know, all these crazy gifts. And it's just like this whirlwind experience. I assume it's kind of the same way, right? Yeah, it was, I mean, they fly everyone, you know, they fly you out MLB kind of like greets you at the airport. Uh, you know, they have a, a nice bus waiting for you to go back to the hotel. Um, it's an MLB event, so it, it was pretty big time. It was, it was They treat you like a big leaguer for a couple weeks. All your all your meals are really good. Hotel is really nice. Uh, yeah, it was, it was basically like, you know, big league treatment for a couple weeks. And, yeah, I don't, I don't really know... Uh, so, like, how do they sort your team out? So, obviously, like, you know, there's amateur players. You know, there's high school kids who play on some of these summer teams where they just all kind of assemble from all over the country. You know, they all fly, you know, into Georgia for a perfect game event or something, and these kids have never met each other, but suddenly they're thrown on a field. Um, so, how did your team, like, gel? Like, you said you are there for a couple of weeks. You know, what was the process? Like, did you guys practice? I mean, how did they figure it all out? Yeah, we got there about a week before the tournament started. Um, which was good. We practiced. We we met in Sydney. Uh, we had probably five practices. Um, 
which is big, which which was cool for the team to just get to know each other organically and not, you know, here we go, we're playing tomorrow, like, let's do this. You know, we were, it was more off the field, like, we would hang out in the hotel and get to know each other. Um, the coaches were, were pretty cool and got us together. You know, we would go to dinners and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, it was a week of practice, BP. Um, we threw bullpens. It was kind of kind of a little bit of a tryout in a sense for some guys like because the coaches hadn't seen anybody you know it was, everyone was new to each other so it was hey we're gonna throw bullpens and if you threw good in the bullpen it was like oh wow like now you're the, you're gonna be the closer like you threw a good bullpen so it was kind of uh, kind of mm-hmm. like a tryout in a sense I know you mentioned tryouts in your one of your podcasts earlier so it was it was uh, a little nerve-wracking I guess just it's one of those things being on a new team where you don't really know what to expect, but everyone was kind of in the same boat. It's not like, you know, there's a team that's been together for a while and you're the new guy. Everyone's the new guy. So, you know, we were all kind of uneasy and, but we really did gel as a team. I thought um, pretty quickly just cause we, we do have the similarity of all being Filipino. So that was, you know, an easy, easy thing to talk about like hey what's your favorite filipino food you know and then we would all do that that whole thing hmm, that's pretty cool um <laughs> so who did you guys end up playing when you're uh when you got rolling uh we played australia in game one and then we lost to them and then we played new zealand and we also <laughs> lost to them we went uh two and out but you guys were at least lovable losers right i assume Yes, we were uh, we were the fan favorite, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> we got uh, we were in both games until late in the game, and they kind of got away from us. But we were in both games, so they were competitive games. And there was actually a really big Filipino population in the area in Sydney, which, uh, if you look at a map, is kind of closer to the Philippines and other places. So there was a, actually a big filipino community in the area that we were in so we had a little uh area in the stands that was from or was filipino and they kind of you could hear them cheering for us over the uh over the aussie crowd okay so you know when the world baseball classic wrapped up for you um you know you spent the next year with us in long island and then after you know deciding to retire this year you transitioned into a pitching coach role with you know university of rhode island so How's that gone? It's been really good. Uh, it was perfect timing, I think, for my career. Um, I was, I could kind of see the writing on the wall. The chances of me getting picked up again were pretty slim, and then the chances of making it to the big leagues were even slimmer, obviously. Um, so it was really the perfect time for me. I'd always wanted to coach, and, you know, I finished my degree and I was, you know, kind of set up for it more than other guys. And I was, you know, I could have played longer if I really wanted to, but, um, I've wanted to coach for a while. And so it was perfect timing. Um, when I got a, you know, I got a text from coach Serato at URI and, you know, he said, Hey, give me a call. I, I got an opportunity for you. And it like really excited me to get that text. So did you know him prior? Yeah, uh, he is Nick Ahmed's uncle, 
who Nick is the he's in the big leagues with the Diamondbacks, my college teammate, my college roommate. Um, so I, you know, I hadn't really, I think I'd met him before, but not really, you know, close relationship. Mm-hmm. But I had a really good reference in Nick and uh, my college coach, um, Coach Penders. So I had, you know, two really good references. And you also, and you also have a, a more extensive academic background than than most players, right? What I know, you have your, you have your uh, your bachelor's and your master's, right? What are those in? Yeah, my bachelor's is in sports administration, and my master's is in sports leadership. At uh, got that at Northeastern while I was playing. So you feel like that played into the fact that you were able, to, or did he? Was that something that he factored in as far as? you know, reaching out to you or is it more just about the relationship that you'd cultivated with his, uh, with, with Mr. Ahmad? Uh, probably the, more the relationship, definitely the relationship. I mean, the, the master's helps. I think it, you know, it could potentially help at some point down the road. And when I got it, it was, you know, I got it so I wouldn't need the relationship. Um, you know, it was more of a, you know, Hey, look at me. I got my, my master's I'm playing baseball type of thing. But the relationship was, you know, I don't think I would have needed my master's to get this position, but it could, you know, potentially help in another position or could have helped in another position. Yeah, I've heard it's more and more important um, than ever. It's, it's more important than ever. And um, obviously having an extensive baseball background is probably the biggest thing in being a coach. But, you know, there's a lot of leadership skills and it's kind of, I don't know, it's just a coincidence that you have a, a degree in leadership uh, in sports leadership, but you know, it was, it was weird. A couple years ago, I was in our Camden clubhouse and uh, you know, my good friend Zach Clark and I were teammates at UMBC and we both graduated with our degrees and our, our manager, Chris Widger was, I don't know, we were on some big conversation and he goes, ah, you and Clark, uh, you smart guys, you guys got your degrees, blah, 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 something like that. And um, Widger is also a smart dude. But it just it struck me as odd when he mentioned that to me because then I started looking around the room and I and I was like, wait, what do you what do you mean us smart guys with degrees? And you know, obviously in the Atlantic League, it's it's a really high level of independent baseball. So most of the guys there have you know played in the big leagues or in AAA or AA. And usually when you're good enough to play in the big leagues AA or AAA, you're a college draft. And usually when you're um, not just a college draft, but a junior draft, right? You were a junior draft, is that correct? Or you, no, you're a senior sign. I was a junior. You're yeah. a junior. So that it kind of just proves my point where all these guys that made it that high were either high school draft picks or junior year in college. Like very few um, senior signs end up getting that far into pro baseball. So it was just weird because we were in a clubhouse of all these really high-level pros who were really good when they were really young. Um, they just never got the opportunity to finish school. It wasn't necessarily that they were not bright. Um, obviously, there's like the whole bell curve, as you've experienced as far as – you know, intelligence in a locker room. I don't know that it's it's any different than the real world. Um, you know, obviously there's like the misconception that athletes are dumb. But really, as far in my experience, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just been the normal bell curve of, of real of reality, of, of regular life, where there's really, really smart guys and there's really dumb guys and there's every um, everyone in between on the spectrum. But I just found it weird that, you know, as I looked around, because there were so many high-level players – the amount of degrees just went down because again, if you just want to get that far in baseball, you know, you have to start younger and you have to be better when you're younger. I mean, has that been your experience as well? 
Yeah, no, it totally makes sense because, you know, the best, the better players will get drafted their junior year and then the better players will get invited to instructional league in the fall, which is when guys will go back to school and graduate. Um, so, yeah, it makes sense. Like, I, the only reason I finished um, is, A, because I wanted to. I, I thought it was important, but my major was actually ending um, they, they, they were ending the major. So it was, you know, I had a good excuse for, uh, the White Sox at that time to say, Hey, I'm, I need to go back to school and finish because my major is going to end. And if I don't go back now, then I'm going to have to change my major. It's going to cost me some money. And, you know, they were actually, the White Sox are actually really good at, you know, understanding and they, they want guys to go back and get their degree. Um, which is cool. Um, and rare. But, yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense. You know, you get drafted as a junior. You're fully invested in making it to the big leagues. Like, I get it that some guys are, you know, you know, screw school. Why would I go back? You know, I'm trying to make it to the big leagues. I'll just go back later. And then they play for 10 years, and then, you know, they're 30, and I have, you know, two, three semesters left. And they're 30 years old, and it's, you know, at that point in your life, it's tough to go back to school. Yeah, and I think it also it lends itself to this helpless position where you're like, well, yeah, I'm 30. All I've ever known is pro baseball. Sure, I can get my school paid for, or sure, I only have a semester or two. But what, I'm going to go back and then get an entry-level job, you know, in, in a major that I haven't taken a class for in six years, or four years, or 10 years, or whatever it is. Um, that's a scary proposition, you know, and I was fortunate to not have to struggle with that because I've, you know, kind of been an entrepreneur and, and doing my thing, um, concomitant with my, or concurrently with my, my baseball career. Um, but I, you know, the Atlantic league is this weird, like transitional league where it's a high level where guys are recirculating back into, you know, double A AA and triple A in the major leagues, you know, with Scott Casimir and, uh, Rich Hill and guys like that. But then there's also a lot of guys who they're giving it their last chance, you know, like you and I did. And then they're re, they're just getting reabsorbed into the general population, the nine to five group. And so, I just remember a couple of years ago I had this conversation with a guy named Matt Maloney um, when I was in Somerset for spring training, and I later got cut by them. But um, Matt was asking me, you know, it was just the normal like spring training, get to know you kind of chit chat in the outfield during BP, and he was like, hey, you know, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I own a baseball academy, um, and he just kind of perked up and he started asking me all these questions. And it was just this really like surreal, strange conversation because over the next like 20 minutes where we talked, he was really interested in, in my life and what I was doing because he had been to the major leagues. He was a really successful pitcher at Ole Miss and um, he like made it everywhere I wanted to make it. So in a, in, a, in a sense, like I was really jealous of his life. Like I wanted all those experiences that he had and he kind of seeing his transition out of the game really kind of was jealous of what I had going on. Like I had an established business and you know, a life after baseball. And I just found it really bizarre as we kind of, you know, stood there and I was like, I want your life. And I'm not saying that he wanted mine, but he was interested in, in what I was doing, um, you know, and expressed the idea that that's something that he would want to do when he was done. And I, I just think that's got to be a, a terrifying time where you're, you know, like I said, I think transition's kind of been a recurrent theme so far of our conversation, but the transition out of baseball is just, it's scary. Yeah. And that's, 
like seeing you when I played with you, it was cool. That's the beauty of baseball. Like you meet a bunch of different people and, you know, from different backgrounds and different experiences and seeing you and you were playing and you were running your business and running your, you know, facility with your teams. That was a first for me. Um, and that's how I, you know, decided to get my master's. I had a teammate who he was working on his master's. I just saw him, Michael Early. He's actually uh, the an assistant at ASU now. And he was, you know, he's one of my good friends and, you know, great player, great coach. But he was the one that got me going on, you know, damn, I should probably get my master's. That's pretty, it's a really good idea. I might as well while I'm riding on the bus for 10 hours. Um, not doing anything like you, you know, you're a huge rarity for sure. Um, running your own business and playing at the same time is super unique. So, well, and it's, it was a weird thing. Like even, and it's, it's almost a misnomer the way you just said, you know, I should just get my master's while I'm spending 10 hours on the bus doing nothing. But I don't think a lot of people who, who haven't played a college sport appreciate how hard it is to be focused on a bus. You know, I, I just remember in, I was I was one of the few philosophy majors. I don't know if I that I knew another teammate who was a philosophy major, and probably for good reason. Like, who wants to do philosophy? Like, what am I gonna do with my life? Everyone still teases me, like, "Oh, you had a philosophy major." So, what do you like <laughs> sit in the woods and stuff and talk to bears and trees and yeah, I don't know. But um, but anyway, like I just remember it almost like it almost doesn't matter what happened on your trip. You're not gonna be well focused to then do work. Either you guys played really well and you did what really well and you're excited and you're kind of like celebrating and there's just like this very good positive energy flowing throughout the bus or you pitch horribly and you're just dwelling and sulking a little bit and you're just caught up in the fact that you wish you had done better and that you need to do better next time. You know, it's it. there's never this middle ground where you're just like content with performance and you can just kind of focus on other things than your sport. I, I mean, what was your experience? I mean, it, it just had to be hard. I, I imagine this is a shared experience for everyone, but I know that I just had such a hard time writing philosophy papers and psychology papers on the bus. I just like could never focus on it. And I, I don't know. I think that in a lot of ways is just the bane of the college, you know, the student athletes existence. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I, I probably did more work off the bus than I did on the bus for exactly what the reasons that you're saying. Uh, you know, it was more, I felt like I could get more done in the morning, like wake up in the morning, probably in a hotel somewhere, go down to the lobby and, you know, fresh start, get my work done. But yeah, after the game, if you pitch bad, you're not doing work. And if you are, you're not doing very good work. Uh, you know, and just even, you know, last night we got back real late. We had a long bus trip and, you know, there's all of our guys are doing work on the bus. You know, I went back, walked back to the uh, to the bathroom on the bus, you know, and you always, you know, say hi to all the guys and they're all trying to focus on their PowerPoints. And, you know, it's really, really tough to do it on the bus. You know, I think you're better off just, you know, having a good time with your teammates, having a meaningful conversation with your teammate. You know, that's easier to do than, you know, study a powerpoint or on a bus after especially after a loss which we had a pretty bad loss so it was pretty tough to focus yeah i uh and for me personally i always enjoyed my bus rides more than anything and i and i think 
now that I've been kind of reflecting back on my career, I think the reason I love the bus rides so much is not because they're, I mean, A, I mean, you know as well as I do, they're physically uncomfortable. It's tough to sleep. Um, you're either in your own world in your headphones or in a book or something, or you're disturbed by the horrible movies that invariably get played or, you know, loud teammates or whatever it is. But so the, the bus environment is pretty variable. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. But I always just enjoyed my bus rides because it was like this weird transition time where I was going somewhere that I couldn't control when I was going to get there or how I was going to get there. And for me, it was almost just like a break from my life. Like I always had this kind of intense guilt during my career where if I, I wasn't doing something that day to get better, um, I just felt like I'd been wasting my time. So when I was on the bus, like there was nothing I could do, you know, I could like meditate for a little while or something, but that was about it. Um, and so for me, it was like a break where I was forced to stop because I just had no power over where I was going, what I was doing, how fast I would get there. I couldn't, you know, rush to get there so I could get my work in. Like I was going to get there when I was going to get there. And I don't think I really realized that until I was done where that was why I, I enjoy travel so much. Because whenever I'm traveling, I have a destination that's already predetermined and my origin is already predetermined. So that little brief, you know, transition that, that travel time between the two is like completely free time, you know, and that was something that I'll, that I'll miss about the game. And obviously I still get to travel places if I want to, but just a little bit different, you know? Yeah. I love the bus, especially longer trips because the beginning is going to be, you know, your teammates are screaming and yelling, you know, you guys are all excited to be, you know, together on the bus, but then, if you got a long one, it's there's a certain point where, you know, it gets quiet. And I love that time. Like, you know, just, you know, it sounds cliche and stupid, but just sitting by yourself and staring out the window and not, you know, getting away from, like, anything that matters, like baseball. And it's just, uh, you know, listening, whatever you want to do is, it's like, I treat it as, like, my alone time um, at, at a certain point once, you know, the all the ruckus dies down. It's, you know, I'm I actually really enjoy it. Just like listening to music, stare out the window and just sitting there thinking, I mean, you know, you're saying meditating, I guess that's my kind of form of meditating, just staring out the window and listening to music or reading or whatever you want to do. It's just, there's been times where I've been on 10 hour bus trips and I'm, I like, don't want them to end. <laughs> yeah. like we there, I'm like, damn, we're here already. Like, we're here that sucks you know like i've been sitting down for 10 hours but you know i was like enjoying that time of just like doing nothing and relaxing and you know i'm not driving the bus you know i'm not going through security it's a long bus ride i, I know i have this time you know to just do whatever i want and, the and other, yeah and the other thing about it is there's like this also there's uh this notion that it's safe that while you're on the bus you're safe because when they're going to release guys they release you before a bus trip obviously and yeah while you're on that bus sure you might get released at your destination which you know that's usually that. how it goes um you know my uh my last trip I, we came back from southern maryland and when i got home you know i got the hey blue i need to see need to see in the uh in my in my office um but for that trip you know that point a to point b like you're safe and there's not a lot of times where you feel safe you know in pro baseball because obviously everyone's fighting for your job and everyone's fighting for promotions and as your ERA climbs or your batting average drops, um, you're 
your feeling of, of safety, you know, drops with it. Um, so when you're on that bus, you know, <laughs> they're not going to stop and, and, you know, and leave you at a, at a Thornton's gas station or something, you know? <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the weird things about baseball. It's almost like when you play well, you just like earn like another day, you just like earn a token. And then when you play like crap, you like give that token back, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it's almost like a currency. So, and, and I kind of had that, um, and I'll get back to your experience in a sec, but you know what, when I started, I started out in independent baseball, obviously that was my whole career and independent baseball is just like, it's going from the very minute you start. So you have, you know, you, you make a team as a rookie. If you have a couple of bad outings, that could be the end of your career right there. So every time you have a good one, you're like, all right, I, that, that means, all right, I've had two good starts in a row. That means if I have a bad one next time, I can't get released after that one. Cause I already had two good ones. So just like keeps earning you more time, just like a checkpoint in like one of those racing games, you know, like a uh, Daytona, was it Daytona USA, that big driving um, video arcade game? I don't know if you're an arcade guy, but um, I mean, but it's not the same in affiliated ball, right? So like, what was your experience in affiliated ball as far as, you know, the competition between your teammates and promotions and all that stuff? What was your sense of all that? Yeah, I'm, to go back on what you said uh, about you know, you have success, it buys you another day. But, like, when you fail, you start to think about it more and more, and then it compounds into a failure, fit more failure, and then it gets in your head, and then you're, you know, then you're screwed at that point. So, like, it's, you got to be able to come back from, you know, losing a day, you know, in the sense that you're saying, like, I pitched bad today. That's, you know, I got to, you know, pitch good again. Uh, you got to be able to deal with that failure. Otherwise, you're not going to last very long. Well, you know, so obviously in independent baseball, it's very about you. Obviously, it's about you everywhere. But, you know, in indie ball, the franchises, the the teams, the organizations, they just need to make money. So they're not in, they're not interested in developing you, you know. So if they sign you, you need to start winning and doing well for their team right away. And if you don't, they'll just take one of the calls from the other guys who agents and players call them every day and they'll just replace you, right? So you get about three weeks um in one of the lower levels to do well and if you don't they just replace you but obviously in affiliated baseball when you get drafted and they have money invested in you you have a longer cycle right so if they have a couple million dollars in a guy they're not just going to get rid of him if he has a bad year you know they're gonna give him three or four or whatever it is but um how does that shake out so you were a 19th round pick what kind of luxuries or what kind of luxuries does a 19th round pick have or not have compared to other guys yeah uh so yeah night the 19th round is you know relative to you know there was 50 rounds when i got drafted is a pretty good round to go in but going into it i knew you know i wasn't a top five rounder which is you know gonna that's gonna buy you realistically you know six years of you know not even performing and still you know, you're going to get the opportunity because of the money invested in you. That's the reality of it. So I kind of knew I was, I was better off than, you know, the majority of people in minor league baseball going in the 19th round. Um, but I still had to be, I don't want to say perfect, but almost perfect. I really had to force my way up the ladder. I had, I knew I had to pitch well my first year and my second year you know to stay around and kind of establish myself as you know a good pitcher and reliable 
And then how how as far as all that stuff, obviously like your numbers and your performance matters, but do you feel like it factors in a little bit or a lot? How much does your makeup, your character, um, the fact that other coaches or players like you, you know, that you're a good clubhouse guy, quote unquote, does that factor into how fast you can move up the ladder? Yeah. I I don't know about how fast you move up, but it can definitely help you stay around a lot longer. Um, because, you know, if you perform, you're going to move up. If you're, you know, if no one likes you and you throw a 95, you're still going to, and you have a, you know, a one five ERA and low A or rookie ball, you're still going to move up if no one likes you. But for guys like, I don't know, like me, um, I think, you know, being, you know, putting my head down and taking care of my business and, you know, not getting into trouble and being, you know, not the highest character of guys that, that kind of kept me around longer than, you know, I should have based on my performance, I think on the back end. So yeah, it can help you in the beginning, but it definitely in professional baseball, there's guys that, you know, underperform in a sense or aren't, you know, prospects, but they're great clubhouse guys. They take care of their business and organizations keep them around for a long time. Just, you know, whether it's to fill in or, you know, they just love them. They, they keep them around. And I don't, I don't think I was one of those guys for, you know, if I was, I'd still be playing, but it kind of kept me around longer than, you know, than most guys, I think is yeah. being, you know, a pretty good clubhouse guy and, you know, taking care of my business, being reliable. And Yeah. So you made it to double A in your third season, right? So, what was that transition like? Obviously, that's a level that I think it's something like only 10% of, of drafted players ever make it to double A. Um, so what was the difference like when you got bumped up there? Uh, the hitters are much more disciplined. I think it was every level you move up is, you know, big, but high A and low A to double A is one of the bigger jumps. The hitters are you know, they don't really swing at bad pitches as much. And even more in AAA. Um, it's just, you know, you're, it's like high school to college. Like, you take the three-hitter from each team, you know, and are the best players in high school go to college, and then the best college players, you know, the best three-hitters are going and getting drafted. It's the same way, low A to double A, like, like you said, 10%. So it's – you can't really get away with as much – low a high a rookie ball like you can really get away with some stuff but the higher up you go double a like curveballs in the dirt you know aren't swung at as much um fastballs up you know aren't swung at as much the strike zone is in my opinion gets much smaller um in double a and triple a uh that was that's probably like an underrated um difference the strike zone is much smaller, so you have to you have to throw the ball in the zone and get guys out in the zone um, to be successful. And that's what I tell a lot of our guys, you know, at URI in college. Like in college, you can get away from getting guys. You can get away with um, getting guys out out of the zone. You know, bouncing curveballs, throwing pitches out of the zone. But the higher up you go, you have to get guys out in the zone because they're not going to swing at it if it's out of the zone, unless you have 
lights out stuff, which, you know, is tough to do. Um, so I guess the biggest difference is you have to be in the zone to get guys out because they're not going to swing at bad pitches. Yeah. And how did you, so like one of the, the interesting things that, you know, I remember my, my buddy, uh, made his big league debut and I said, well, did you feel like you had to do anything different? He said, well, no, like, you know, if they call you up, you know, they're calling you up because they think that the stuff that you show in AAA is going to work at the next level, or at least to a degree. Like, you can't try to change yourself every time you go up another life. Oh, what I did in, in single A isn't going to work in double A. Or, oh, what I did in double A was good, but now I'm in triple A, so I have to change things. Did you, I mean, did you have that sense of urgency? Did you try to, like, remake yourself each time, or um, did you still kind of pitch mostly the same way? I think I did change a little bit. I, I had heard, you know, people telling me, all right, you gotta, you know, you can't really miss your spots as much. You know, you gotta be, you gotta spot up better. And I think it kind of affected my performance. Like I changed too much. I kind of gotten, you know, Oh man, this is double a, I gotta, I can't miss my spot. But so I sort of lost my conviction for a while. Just, you know, here it is, hit it in a sense. Like I didn't, that's kind of how I've always pitched is, you know, I don't really care if I miss my spot, you know, I'm going to, if I hit my spot, I hit it. But if I miss it, I'm convicted in this pitch and I want to, you know, <laughs> sometimes I'm trying to blow this by you. And that's when I was most successful. Just, you know, not thinking about, you know, too much and kind of letting my stuff take over. Um, and when I thought that way, i in turn, didn't miss my spots as much. So when I went to double A, there was a, a small period where it was, you know, I kind of, you know, I thought too much of the level. And I I wish that I could have, you know, just pitched how I pitch uh, more than I did. You know, I kind of, I guess I did change my identity a little bit and thought, you know, to spot up a little bit more but my stuff was more effective when, you know, I was uh, full bore going at it. Yeah. And I think that's a challenge probably for everyone. And I was, I was actually chatting with a buddy about that on my drive home from Chicago this morning. Um, I just finished a book called the talent code actually on audible. It's my first uh, book on tape, which I really enjoy because I've been driving a lot. Um, but anyway, and that, that wasn't a plug for audible. I just, uh, I like reading and I'm trying to be productive and God, just driving two hours up to Chicago each weekend um, has been a little bit brutal for that. But I just it, listened it, to my first book on Audible. You did what? I just listened to my first book on Audible. What did you listen to? You might have to cut this out, but it was <laughs> the uh, the subtle art of not giving a f word. <laughs> we'll leave, we'll leave, we can leave that in there, but that's uh, I'm gonna have to look that up. But um, I mean. I, as much as I want to keep our uh, our conversations clean, I think most people have heard the F word before, maybe even the B word. You never know. I mean, TV these days is brutal. There, uh, if you put around the social media, you just realize how worse. You can't like censor anything anymore. The internet's just so vulgar and horrible. <clears throat> I mean, social media is just brutal. But um, anyway, back to what I was trying to ramble on. Um, you know, we were talking about how and this book the talent code was is all about how you learn and how people develop into great performers and 
the the overlying theme is that you have to fail and then examine your failures and then just try to keep plugging those little holes. So, you know, you build a boat, you put it on the water, it springs a leak, you plug that leak, then it springs a different leak, you plug that leak. And over time, you assemble a pretty watertight ship, you know. So I think as you probably jump up a level, I think that's a common probably human thing. Like, oh, man, these guys are better. I have to do better. Like I, what I was doing was a level lower. Now I'm a level higher. So I got to have to instantly be better. Whereas, you know, the book, I think, inspired me to believe that really you just have to kind of go and dance with who brung you and just pitch the way you knew how to pitch at the lower level and see how it works. And it's not going to work, right? You're like, you're going to get hit around a little bit. And then you start to adjust. Okay, I made that pitch, you know, in, in high A. And here I am in double A. I make that same pitch and the guy drives it to right field. Okay, well, next time I'll know that I maybe I need to set him up a little bit differently or maybe I got to locate that a little bit better or whatever it is. But I think I think life and in general, it's all just learning on the fly. And you have to be really – but the thing about it is you have to really deeply learn um, and really be focused on what's – you know, what is the, the cause and effect and what's happening when I make mistakes. Because if you're just flying through like, oh, I'm pitching the way I always pitch and it's not working, well – if you're not being introspective about it, if you're not analyzing, you know, what's going wrong, then you're not going to get better. Then you're just going to get destroyed and you don't belong there, you know, but, um, I don't know. How did you, how did you adapt to the levels? Cause you had a couple of years there and you pitched in triple A. So how did you adapt? You know, cause obviously there were shortcomings at first and there were failings at first, but what did you do? Yeah. Uh, I think failing at that level and failing in general throughout my career was, the best thing that ever happened to me um, and failing the right way and learning from, you know, taking those failures and turning them into positives learning and adapting quickly was, you know, that's how I, I think I played longer than most people. Uh, I wish that I, you know, looking back on it, I handled failure better than I did because I was really hard on myself um, in that time, like double A, I knew I was, close and you know kind of knocking on the door if i i was you know a good two months away from the big leagues if i really did well for you know two or three months it was close so it was really really stressful and i think that affected how i handled the failure and you know i, I could have handled it better and you know made adjustments quicker instead of you know when you give up three runs in an outing thinking about man i just kind of blew it i you know i was I was close, you know, and now I'm, you know, much further back. Instead of thinking that way, it was, all right, you know, what pitch did you throw and and what count and how can you change that to, you know, get better in the next outing, in your next pitch, you know, thinking more pitch to pitch than, you know, getting in your own head. But I think, yeah, just handling the failure of, you know, giving up a ton of runs in one inning it sucks. It's terrible. It's a really bad experience. Um, I think that's why I'm balding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think I did a decent job at it and, you know, that helped me grow as a baseball player and even more as a person, I think just failing in baseball is going to be, it's, I think the hardest thing you know, I'll see it in my life. Like, you know, if I 
getting like a nine to five job or, you know, you have a deadline and you fail at it. That's like, that's not even close to, you know, giving up five runs in one inning. Like the feeling, the comparison of those two feelings is like unbelievable. It's the hardest thing. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I remember obviously in 2016, you know, I, I just didn't pitch well. And towards the end, I just saw it all, all unraveling in front of me and, you know, pretty much powerless to, to change it, you know, as much as I was trying to fix things. But I mean, you saw how I, I'd give up other guys runs and those are the worst when you give up your buddies runs, you know, you come in, um, you know, they struggled that day. You come in to hopefully bail them out and you just make things worse and you just have to walk in and you're like, God, dude, I'm sorry. Like, I'm terrible. Like that's, that was, it's hard to describe how, you know, letting your teammates down, but specifically letting one guy down. Um, and everyone shares in that same thing. Cause I remember I was just doing that all the time. It's like, Hey, do you want to, do you want your run to score? Just bring on Dan in, <laughs> bring on Dan. In. Hey, let's just, let's, I'll cash all your runs for you. I'm like a bank. But, um, you know, I then, think I remember apologizing to you at one point or another. Yeah, probably. But then, you know, I was just giving up your runs and everyone else's runs. And I just remember, <laughs> but you know, the perspective on it is, everyone's out there doing their best and this is where it kind of boils back down to like little league baseball when kids you know in their immaturity will get get angry at a teammate or they'll get angry in general but everyone's out there doing their best you know and if you make sure you keep that in perspective like none of your buddies they all they all want to go out there and just punch out the side for you and strand all your runners right that's everyone's goal but I just remember I came in this was towards the end in June I I let the bases you know I, I packed the bases loaded and I came in and um, you know, our, our friend Jerry comes in after me and gives up a grand slam. And as I watched that ball go out, I was just like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> that's about, that seems about par for the course for me right now. And he came in and he was just like, dude, I'm so sorry. I'm like, man, it's not your fault. Like I packed the bases, you know, like you're out there trying to make a good pitch to get me out of it. And they're just not all going to work. Like you can't wriggle out of every bases loaded jam, you know? Um, and I, you know what you touched on before it's it's so hard i think that's one of the hardest things about sports is trying to separate yourself from the things that you want the most you know like when you remarked how you're you're close to you cuz i know you we we had talked about that before in the bullpen where you said you'd like a a low 2 ERA and double A and you're like man if i if i keep this up and i keep dominating the rest of the season like i might get a september call up like you don't know and how do you separate yourself from like you want that more than anything you've ever wanted in your whole life but the more you dwell on that, the worse your performance gets, right? Like you get down on yourself more, you put more pressure on yourself on the mound. And I think it takes, I don't think people appreciate enough the guys who actually make it to the big leagues that they have the mental makeup to separate themselves from that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like I've said a couple of times, I think part of the reason I didn't make it to the big leagues is because I cared too much. It was like, you know, the guy, I've seen a lot of guys, like, it seemed like they didn't really care as much. And they, you know, I'm not saying they didn't work hard. They they worked really hard, but they were able to separate their performance and, you know, put that aside and not care about the result as much as I did. Like, I, I was, I cared too much about the result. I cared too much about making it to the big leagues. And I was, you know, kind of, it slowed me down, I think, because I got I would get so caught up in, you know, like you said, what's my ERA right now? Like, you know, what's my baseball card going to look like? It's, you know, if, you know, I ended up 
to finish that story that you brought up about having a 2-0 and you know it was in August and in double a I ended up giving up 13 runs in a week in August and then my two went to a 4.2 and then you know that was the difference and I think part of that was because you know that thought was somewhere in my head and I you know I cared too much about it and it ended up affecting my performance in a way. A um, bunch of other variables too, you know, but that was definitely part of it. Just caring too much. Um, I don't want to say too much, but just, yeah, I, I, I get what you mean. Obviously like you just want it so bad and you feel like, man, every time I fall short of that, you know, it's hard to let that go. Um, but I don't know, you know, and going back to the, the sense of promotion, um, you know, we make all these messes ourselves, you know, for the most part. So I know one of the, the phrases that you and I both enjoy was, you know, if you don't like it, play better. Um, <laughs> why, why don't you expand on that for our, our listeners on what that phrase means to you? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you hear that. You hear that a lot in a baseball clubhouse. Um, and I, my favorite part of that is, you know, when guys are complaining about, oh, this first rounder, you know, he's getting every opportunity. I'm not getting any opportunities. And I'm like, yeah, but like you were a, you know, a 40th rounder or a free agent or, you know, you signed out of any ball. Like you knew or you should know, maybe you didn't, maybe you're, you're just kind of naive to the situation, but you knew what you're getting into. Like if you don't like it, play better. If you, so what I would always say, like, well, you should have played better in college or like <laughs> you should have like worked out more and been better in high school or, whatever like that first rounder yeah your, your dad should have married a taller woman yeah like tough luck like you you weren't as good as him in college or you weren't as good as him in, co in high school so he was better than you then and he you know earned that you know two and a half million dollar signing bonus or whatever it is and so he earned the right to you know have a better chance a better opportunity than you um <laughs> so yeah like the playing field it really isn't even because you know he earned it and you didn't play that well in college there's definitely exceptions definitely guys that you know played really really well played to the full their fullest capability in college and in high school and you know still went late but that being said should have had better genes yes <laughs> yeah there you go you know yeah and i and i obviously i share that and i, I wrote an article about it recently on my website but um you know, I just feel like more and more there's a lot of entitled kids who think that it, it should be a level playing field. And like, why shouldn't I? Uh, why shouldn't I get a chance? Like, why shouldn't I move up? Like, oh, who cares? Well, so what? He has a million dollars, you know, invested in him. Like, I my ERA was three tenths of a run better. Like, I should go. I should be the higher guy. But you know, obviously, and the other thing about it is, it also I think that statement. You know, if you don't like it, play better. It also just it leaves it all on you, which is. Um, you know, you and I share similar religious beliefs, which we're not going to get into, but it's ultimately on you, right? If you want, if you want something, it's merit based. So yeah, there's politics involved. And this guy who might not be better than you, he might have worse numbers than you. He might get the promotion, but the only thing in your power to do anything about it is just to play better. Right. Or if you're not playing as well as you want, then practice harder or, you know, work out more, whatever it is, like fill in your shortcomings. So I don't know. I just, you know, in this like social media you know guy can't even like ask a girl out in real life anymore kind of world that we live in 
it just feels like there's more excuses than ever and you know i think we need less of them if if, if anything we need less excuses as far as like why we're not achieving as much as we achieve you know it's like if you're not smart enough just like listen to more audible books <laughs> while you're driving to, to, to random places right man i should get paid by them that'd be the best <laughs> yeah it's like you know there's going back on what you said about like yeah be, kid, guys being entitled and <laughs> like hey let me look at your stats and then i'll tell you why you know you didn't get moved up or like what round did you go in like get back to reality and you know you're not owed anything it's funny like yeah you're the podcast is called dear baseball gods like the baseball gods don't owe you anything like you <laughs> it doesn't matter like you gotta you have to perform and if you don't perform to the level that you're supposed to perform based on your standing in the organization then you're not going to move up and that's reality so a first rounder if i'm in the bullpen with a first rounder and i'm a 19th rounder if the first rounder has a 4.0 ERA and I have a 3.0 ERA, the first rounder is going to get moved up. I know that going into it, you know, I have to overperform and, you know, significantly outperform the people that are, that started ahead of me. Yeah. And that's like all, all walks of life, right? Like people want to, you know, they want the new job or whatever. Well, it's like when you're building a team and like you alluded to earlier, like we have academy teams at Warbird Academy now and, um, we tell everyone that tryouts we're like look if you want to if you want us to get rid of a guy who is a returner for us you you can't be equal to him you can't be just like a little bit better than him you have to be like way way better where it's an un unmistakable um no doubt about it upgrade right and that's kind of how it is like first rounder they got money in him he's got like you have to be so much better than him that it's like not even funny where they're going to put you in there over him. And that makes sense. Like, why would you not? Like if you, if you own a baseball team, wouldn't you do the same thing? Like you spend a lot of money on a guy you want to just try to get your money's worth. Right. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's normal. I think that's just like any other investment. You just want to, if you believed in it and you put that much effort and money into it, you want to try to get something back for it. Right. And I know that sounds probably, there's probably other, you know, independent guys and underdog players out there who are probably like, ah, screw you, Dan. Like you're rooting for the wrong side. I'm not like, I'm not rooting on either side. Like yeah. I wanted my chance and I never got it. You know, and if anything, I just have a pretty profound sense that life's just not fair and that's okay. You know, like I got as much as I wanted to, not as much as I wanted to, but I got as much as I could out of my career. Like I did what I could, you know, and you're another guy who I know did what he could and got a lot out of his career. But at the end of the day, like being privileged, helps right like if you're born in the ghetto you're disadvantaged from the start and you have to work harder than all the suburban kids to catch up right that's just how life is and you either accept it or you don't and it doesn't make it easier to get out of that life but it's just it's just reality sometimes yeah and it sucks i mean yeah like uh yeah like you're saying pick like there'll be you know your former teammates or my former teammates or guys, you know, that might listen to this and think, yeah, you're taking the wrong side. But like, yeah, there's, there's been first round draft picks that I've defended and there's been first round draft picks that I didn't like. It's all, you know, it's not like it's, you know, I don't like all first rounders. Like I have really good friends that are first rounders and 
they're really good guys, and they earned that right to to play longer than I did. And you know, but there's also guys that you know they earned it at one point, and then you know they kind of piss it away. And those are the guys that make it frustrating for some people. Like, you know, look at this guy; he's getting the opportunity, he doesn't do anything, and that's true. But like we were saying before, that's just the reality of it, and you have to deal with it. You got to you have to perform, so get better and do it. Yeah, and the last thing I kind of want to cover, um, now that you've been back in the – obviously you played college baseball just like I did, played pro baseball. Now you're back in the college game. So, you know, you learned a lot of things along the way as far as, you know, professionalism, building your routine, you know, how to deconstruct a hitter, how to pitch out of a jam, all those things. Like what, what what's the big difference between a good Division One? say college senior and a good pro pitcher, maybe like three, four, five years into his career. Like what's the difference between those two guys? Like what is, what does pro baseball do to a player? And like, what are they, what's like the new perspective that they get, you know, at that deep into, you know, deep in division one versus deep into pro baseball. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the, the routine. You have to be, ultra consistent the higher up you go you have to be more consistent um especially in the pros the season's much longer you have to be able to be consistent every single day and have your routine and perform every single day as opposed to college it's a shorter season 56 games plus the postseason um you can kind of get away with more um, in college, you definitely can get away with more in college of, you know, not being consistent. And I think going into the pros, like, yeah, you guys tend to slow things down, um, you know, command their stuff better, control their stuff better, understand who they are as a pitcher. Um, kind of just a deeper understanding of yourself and, how you perform and, you know, cause you're in college, it's more of, you know, kind of, you know, you're getting your pitches called for you. You're trying to, you know, blow by guys. You can do whatever you want. Really. If you're going to be a pro, like you can get away with a lot more because you're just pretty talented compared to the rest of the people. And then once you get to the pros, you're, you know, it's, Hey, everyone's better. If not, you know, the same, or if not better than you, so you just have to figure out, you know, what works best for you as a pro and be super, super consistent with it. And if you're not consistent with it, then, you know, that's the difference between big leaguers and minor leaguers is consistency, doing it every single day. You know, there's there's kids in college now, you know, on our team and, you know, teams that we play that absolutely 100% have big league performances. Like one inning, that was – if he pitched that inning that he just pitched in college in the big leagues, he'd get three outs without a doubt. But it's just a matter of doing that every single day. And that's what separates college players from minor league players and minor league players from big leagues players is how quickly they can adjust and be consistent every single day. And, you know, pitch that big league performance that you have in college and do that every single day, not, you know, once every couple of weeks 
and not making adjustments. Um, and so what's the actionable difference? So say you have a kid who can put out a big league performance once every five days. Um, what gets him to one, one out of every two outings or every outing? Like what, what's the actionable thing? What's the action item that gets him to that next level? Is it routine? Uh, is it just yeah. his focus? Like, what is it? I'd say a little bit of both. Mostly, you know, I think it's mental. You know, once you have your routine, like, and you control your routine, you have it, that's fine. That's great. But it's definitely mental um, because I think guys tend to have a very good outing, like we're talking about, like have a big league performance, and then it's, you know, they're going into, say, their next start or, you know, their next relief appearance. And they still have the thought of that, you know, that outing in the back of their mind. Like, yeah, just, you know, strike out the side on, you know, 10 pitches. It was, I'm nasty. And then they lose sight of how they did that in the first place. Now they're pitching in the game thinking, yeah, this is what I did last time here. You know, I'm just going to do it again. And they're not thinking what they thought of in that outing where they were doing really well. Mm-hmm. So it's all about maintaining your your edge and you're keeping the focus on what was my edge when I pitched well in that performance and how can I do my best to stay and continue to have that edge every single outing and not, you know, get full of myself because this game will humble you really, really quickly. And at the same, on the other side of the spectrum, which we talked about already is, you know, not letting your failures get to you. But I think it's just as important to not let your successes get to you. Um, you know, responding from failure is one thing, but continuing success and responding to success is just as important and staying kind of even keeled 72 degrees you know, not letting it get in your head, you know, up and down, you just stay steady, stick to your physical routine, and then just maintain your edge as a pitcher, whatever it is, there's guys that, you know, pitch better when they're pissed off, there's guys that pitch better when they're, you know, singing songs in their head, whatever it is, you have to maintain that edge. And it's, I'd say 90% mental. You know, and then, you know, that 10% is your, your physical preparation and whatever, but just maintaining your edge and that's the toughest part. It's really, really hard because you get, you know, full of yourself and then a couple of pitches later, you know, you've given up 13 runs in a week. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's such a difficult thing to have the same mentality every single time out to to block that bad stuff out to get back into the fluid you know rhythm that you want because you know everyone's had that experience where they're just in the zone you know in that flow where man they just punch out the side with like no problem and they just pace off the mound but then next time they come out like something's a little bit off and they just suddenly don't feel that way at all and suddenly it just like goes completely the opposite direction you go how can it how can it be this night and day um, and yeah, I, th- and I think the things you touched on, man, it's just, it's just tough to be that good day in and day out, you know, and I, I know a lot of people have expressed a similar sentiment where they'd rather take the shortstop who makes every routine play, uh, rather than 
the shortstop that makes, you know, a couple incredible flashy plays, but then boots, you know, the routine double play ball when the team really needs it, you know, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, you know, and there, it's just, it's one of those things where there's just there's a huge gap and a divide in, in Western culture where, you know, one of my good friends, Alan Jagger, I was listening to his um, interview on a podcast uh, the other day, and he talks about, you know, how Eastern philosophy, you know, and all the, the samurai and there's so many great books, you know, um, you know, The Unfettered Mind, The Hagakore, you know, um, the uh, one of my favorite poem books called The uh, the Way of Chuang Tzu, but they're all, you know, talking about Taoism and just staying in the flow and, um, and just trying to separate yourself from your desires, separate yourself from outcomes, from consequences. I know a lot of the samurai used to meditate on their death. So when they'd get into battle, they'd already like, they'd already died before, you know, they'd seen themselves cut into pieces, into ribbons so many times that it didn't phase them anymore to think that they might actually, it might actually happen here in real life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's crazy to think of the mental strength and like all these European bloc countries do that with their weightlifters and there was just an Olympic dominance for so many years, you know, with European bloc weightlifters and um, obviously like the, the Far East uh, um, martial artists, they, they're just so much more mentally prepared and mentally strong than American players, it, like all sports, so all disciplines. We just don't think it's, it's valuable for some reason. It's just, it's bizarre. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, like the difference in cultures that you talk about getting real deep, like Western culture versus Eastern culture. It's like the, you care. Well, I think we care too much about, you know, outside factors and what people think about us, especially now, you know, like my stats are going on Twitter. You know, if I pitch bad, it's going to be on Twitter or whatever. Um, but the reality is, you know, and this was kind of in the book that I just read that I mentioned in the title earlier, like you going back to the samurai, like they meditate on their death. And this book talks about like you're the reality of things is like you're going to die one day and, you know, it's, it's going to come quicker than you think. And you got to be able to, you know, decide what things you care about and what things you don't and making that decision of, you know, I don't care about this result going back to baseball. Like you you can care about your performances, but the more you like caring about your performance, like it doesn't help in the end. It's, you know, you got to carry, care about the things you can control and, you know, that's, you know, be mentally tough. That's being mentally tough is, you know, putting the result aside and, you know, just controlling the variables that you can control and making the best of them. Whatever happens after that happens, you can't, you can't care about those you know, in your, your short life that you have. Yeah. And, you know, baseball just has so many different opportunities to care, you know, like on the mound, like in the batter's box, in between plays. And then after the game, before the next game, like there's so much downtime. I mean, baseball, if we're just all being honest with each other, is the most boring sport in the history of mankind, right? <laughs> especially if you're a, uh, obviously I mean that in jest, but um, especially if you're a pitcher, you know, you show up to the ballpark at two thirty you go and you do your pregame stretching and you run your seven sprints if you're a reliever. Um, and, you know, and those seven sprints are really just seven jogs if you're most relievers. Um, you know, you, you play catch for 11 minutes and then you, like, do some more stretches and just, like, feign that you're doing things. 
and then you do arm care for like four minutes and, <laughs> and then you shag bp in the outfield for 45 minutes which really means you just stand there and talk to your teammates yeah. while you're well, ho- hopelessly bored well yeah barely just you know you get the balls you can walk to within your little radius <laughs> and then you jog in and you get your peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you sit at your locker for a while and you rummage through Twitter until you're just bored to tears and then you shower and then you put what Kramer hot stuff on your arm. Um, <laughs> if you're going to maybe start that day, you know, whatever you put on your uniform, you go out there and then if you're a reliever, the game starts at seven and you don't pitch till nine. So you're just bored for another two hours. Um, and you know, this is the point where if you're, really trying to be a good player you watch the game you watch it intently and you try to figure out what you're going to do when you get out there and keep an idea of each hitter's tendencies and how what kind of day they've had but in general you got to sit through another two hours of baseball before you get your four minutes of you know your four minutes to shine and uh you know at my alma mater umbc there are only a couple major leaguers but I remember one of them came back and was talking to us one time. His name was Jay Witasik, and he was a reliever and had a pretty good big league career. He was a starter and a reliever, I think, throughout his career. But he, he remarked that during his time as a reliever, his goal was that no one ever knew his name and that he was off the mound as quick as he, as quick as he was on it. So he, his goal was to pitch as little as he could possibly pitch during his paycheck, which <laughs> is, is pretty funny and profound in the same way because if you're a reliever and you're out there for a long time, then, yeah, you're not doing your job very well. All right, so last last question for you then. Um, you talk about the mental game and just how important that is and your routine and separating yourself from the things that you want, but you described your time, um, especially with the Diamondbacks because you signed with them as a free agent, you described yourself as just a filler player there, just an organizational guy. Um, how did that affect your mindset? And can you kind of elaborate for people who don't know, like what does it mean to be just filler Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, I think uh, I love the Diamondbacks organization. I think they're awesome. They are legitimately looking for the best players in the country. Like indie ball, they crush it. Uh, so I think when they did sign me, they were they expected me, you know, to be a guy that pitches in the big leagues for them. Like no doubt, that's what they're looking for when they go and sign indie ball guys but again like we talked about the reality is yeah you know i signed as a free agent like you know i it was out of a tryout and so i knew that and so i think for you know a good month i was still you know a potential guy to move up and you know, pitching the big leagues for them, but it came to a certain point where, like, yeah, my velocity kind of went down um, a little bit. I wasn't pitching well as I'd liked, and so then you become, at that point, a filler, and that's kind of, you know, they have their prospects. They have their guys that, you know, they want to pitch on certain days with certain rest in certain situations, and then there's guys who, which is what I sort of became is that pitch and all the other situations like, you know, I'm not complaining about it whatsoever because I loved it. It helped me play much longer than, you know, most guys or longer than I should have, you know, based on my, you know, performance, but you pitch in situations where, you know, you're going back to back where the prospect isn't going to go back to back. Uh, You're pitching in 
longer outings just to, you know, get the game over. So, you know, the guys that they value more um, aren't, you know, pitching in uncomfortable situations um, physically or, you know, even mentally, I guess. Um, so it's, it's, there's a lot of guys out there that are still doing that and will continue to do that or, you know, filling spots, you know, eating up innings, they're reliable, they throw strikes. Um, and they, you know, they're good clubhouse guys. And that's what I did for, I think my last year with the White Sox and then with the Diamondbacks, um, I was reliable. I knew they knew what they're going to get out of me. I was going to, I joke about, you know, I'll give you a four ERA at any level. You know, <laughs> I won't walk many guys, you know, I'll have pretty good strikeouts, but I'm going to give up a couple home runs. I'll give you a four flat at any level you want. And, you know, <laughs> win a couple games, lose a couple games, but you know, you know what you're going to get out of me. So it's kind of, those are, um, I don't want to speak for all filler guys or organizational guys, but that's kind of what they are. Yeah, and it's got to be hard because obviously, especially as an indie guy, you know, I wanted to be one of the go-tos. Like, they don't sign long relievers, you know. Like, they sign out your team's closer and your team's best starter or your team's setup guy, you know. And um, obviously, when you and I were in Long Island, you know, I, I was one of those top three guys starting into the year because I was a setup man with Camden yeah. the previous season and I quickly lost that role you know I didn't pitch well and so then you start entering games instead of you know me pitching the seventh in a 2-1 game I'm pitching the sixth or the fifth of a 9-2 to blowout and you're like god how did I how did I get here like I'm just mopping up innings that don't even matter and it's tough and it's a it's another hard mental place to be because you not only are you not pitching the situation that you want, but the scouts know it too. Like they're not going to, you know, it doesn't matter how hard you throw. If you're mopping up the fifth inning of a blowout, that's not the guy they want, right? Like you're pitching that inning for a reason. Um, so you got to climb your own totem pole within your team again. And, you know, and again, it all boils back to the same thing. If you don't like pitching the fifth inning of a, you know, of a nine to nine to one game, just pitch better. Right, right. So it, it always boils back to the same thing. If you don't like it, play better. And that's exactly how it works because, you know, your role increased as you were pitching well and I was not pitching well. And we saw other guys, um, you know, our teammate Yuri De La Rosa, he, he like, I think he got blown up his first outing of the year and he was pitching mop-up for the next couple of weeks. And then he just struck out seemingly every hitter who had ever walked into the batter's box against him. And, and, and in short order, he was like, our go-to guy, right? He was pitching the tight games because he was just punching out the world. Um, yep. So you, you always earn it back, right? Even if you get disgraced for a little while, you just pitch well or play well or hit well or whatever, and you just earn your way back up. Like that's how everything works. But um, once you get into the bottom like that, it's you can just dwell on it and be like, man, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm, I'm the mop-up guy. I'm the last guy in the bullpen. You know, it's just like – it's easy to get demoralized and just take yourself out of it. Then it just spirals out of control. Yeah, exactly. Like, so as, as a fill, two things as a filler or, or organizational guy, like that's how, you know, that's how you know that you're in that spot when you're, you know, you're pitching in those situations and like, Hey, we're losing by 10. We have four innings left. Like fans, you get in there, you know, 
give up three runs in these four <laughs> four innings and just finish the game so we can get out of here. Yeah, we'll meet you in the clubhouse. Uh, yeah, and then, but at the same time, you know, having that opportunity, uh, you always you still have a jersey. Like you still have the opportunity to pitch in those crappy innings and you know strike out the side, and then it's like whoa, you know he look at that he pitched really well. They still watch those innings and people still see those innings and you still have that opportunity. You can't just say, Oh, you know, we're going to lose this game. You kind of got to be selfish in a way, like take it personal. And, you know, if you can take it personal the right way and control yourself and, you know, use that as fuel and then pitch better in those crappy situations, then you're not going to pitch in them anymore. Um, and then you're going to, you know, be pitching in the playoffs at late in the game with a lead if you do it the right way throughout the season. So roles can change really, really quickly. Like you said, just being able to take advantage of whatever opportunity you have. Um, and that's what I, I felt like with the Diamondbacks was I loved it. They put me on the Phantom DL for a little bit, and I was fine with it. It was better, you know, it's better than the alternative of going home. Um, and I kind of just I kept working, and, you know, then they ended up, I was on the Phantom DL in high A and then they, I got a call one morning and they sent me to AAA and it was, I was like, hell yeah, I hadn't been to AAA before. It was awesome. And then I went and, you know, I, I actually had a four ERA. There you go. I don't thought. And, you know, I, it was fine. It was great. And I think just staying even kill, like I said before, like you can pitch out of those situations and use, you know, being in that situation is fuel and embrace it and pitch better and then get out of it. Yeah. And I like what you said. I think that's a good place to kind of end, you know, whereas if you still have a Jersey and you got a ball, you got the ball in your hand, like it's always up to you. Right. So yep. it's always within your power. Well, Hey, I want to thank, uh, thank you, Kevin Vance, um, for being on our show today. First guest, actually. I mean, that's pretty exciting. I think we had a pretty good talk. Um, and obviously, I want to I want to wish you luck uh, this year with URI. I mean, how how many games uh, are you guys into your season so far? Uh, we're about halfway. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. So. We well, got, uh, you know, twenty something, twenty something games left regular season. Okay. Well, I wish you guys luck. Hopefully, uh, can make the. You guys are you guys Big East or you're A10? Which is it? I can't remember. Uh, we're A10. Atlantic 10. Okay. Atlantic. Well, hey, if you guys get a chance to check out. Uh, roadie play check him out and uh, wish uh, coach Vance luck so all right man well hey appreciate you having on the show this was dear baseball gods